Hi there, it's Daniel. We're closing out season one with another special guest. Emily Harris, host of the Get Offset podcast, guitarist in Sunday Crush, among other bands, and a longtime Hold Steady fan, joins us to talk about the band and their sound. She fills us in on the growing complexity in the Hold Steady's work over time, but also why the band connected for her from day one just as much as it did for us. It's a fun episode, and I think you'll enjoy it. Before we get started, a couple quick notes. This is the last episode of season one, concluding our journey with Almost Killed Me. But you can get caught up on the whole season on this podcast feed or at shortmanstudios.com slash a positive jam. That's a dash positive dash jam after the slash. And we're starting our preparation for season two, so stay tuned. Sometime this winter, we'll kick off another dive into a great album. We'd love for you to be involved. If you have any interest in joining us on an episode or any requests for albums to cover now or in the future, hit us up on Twitter at Daniel Shortman, at Shortman Studios, and at M. Brooks Taylor, or email us at mail at shortmanstudios.com. All right, that's enough. Let's get to today's episode. So, Emily, thank you for joining us. Thanks. Just so proud to be here. It's always fun. One of the fun things about doing this is getting to meet the unified scene, all the people out there who are old steady fans. Yeah, that's one of my favorite things and what I miss most about going going to the shows because it really is such a such a good community. Totally. So what what got you into them? Like how far back do you go and what, what like give us sort of the quick background on you and the whole city? I think I was a senior in high school when Boys and Girls in America came out. And my music downloader web store of choice was eMusic. And I just kept seeing it all over eMusic, really fought it for a while, and finally downloaded it and listened to it. And it's just kind of all gone downhill from there. (laughs) We talked to some people who got into the band around the Boys and Girls in America period. Did you immediately dive into the other albums or was it more of a slow sort of discovery? I think I listened to Boys and Girls in America probably a hundred times and then got Separation Sunday and then went into Almost Killed Me. It's hard. It's kind of hard to say. I just remember like every day that summer driving to work or wherever and it would I would just listen to one of their records in its entirety on the way there and then on the way back. So really very deep, very, that's just how I listen to music. I, I don't know if it's like being a musician, but when I find something I like, I'm like, I'm going to listen to it 15 times in a row. Yeah. I'm like that too. How far away was your work that you could get through like a whole album on one way? I lived in rural Ohio. Uh huh. So my mom used to joke that when we lived in downtown Cincinnati, she was 20 minutes from any, everything. And then when we moved out to rural Ohio, we were 20 minutes from something. <laughs> I see. So I guess, wow, a whole album's worth of a car ride. A lot, lot, lot of driving, a lot of driving. I have one, I have one album like that that's related to work in that way. One of my first jobs was as a clerk in a billing office for an insurance company and i had joni mitchell blue 
and oh. it like mapped perfectly to my lunch break. So I'd get in my car during lunch and drive like a mile away from the job site and listen to blue while I like ate my peanut butter sandwich. Just like yep. felt so sad that I was just this clerk. <laughs> <laughs> California. <laughs> my friend and the singer in one of the bands that I'm in, she was going to Paul Mitchell hair school. I think it was probably like 2009. And whenever I would go and she would cut my hair, we would plan it around her lunch break. So then we could just go sit in the parking lot in the car, drive to Rose Pepper or something. And we just sit in the parking lot, just exaggeratedly lip syncing, actually singing out loud all of the songs, all the whole steady songs that we had on in whatever CD we had that day. Wow. Yeah, so we, we, I'm, sure friends, we, I'm sure would... we look sane. I'm sure we look very <laughs> sane. And well, what what's, what's is it that Donald Trump says? Very... Stead, not steady. Um, yeah, steady, steady <laughs> genius, yeah. right? A steady Stable genius. Steady genius, yeah. He loves the band, yeah. He knows We're all the words. Stable geniuses. We look like very stable geniuses. You started going to shows, I imagine, pretty soon after you got into the band? Yeah, seeing the whole steady was my first 18 and up show at the original Southgate House in Newport, Kentucky. It was on a Tuesday right after my 18th birthday, and I was... I remember I was so sad. I'm like, oh, they're playing the Southgate house. I can't go to the Southgate house. And then I was like, they're playing it on like May 13th and my birthday is May 10th. Like I'm going to the show. It was like a Tuesday night or whatever. And I was talking to my mom. I'm like, well, I just, I really want to go. They're my favorite band. I'm like, I really feel like I need to go to this show. I don't have anyone who will go with me. And, but I'm going and you can't stop me because I'm 18. And she just paused and she's like, I'll go with you. <laughs> so my mom, went and the Southgate house had this big horseshoe kind of balcony and she sat in the balcony and just kind of watched me on the floor and just the, the crowd was so nice. I didn't feel any like those weird vibes that I've subsequently felt at other rather dude centric shows. Like it was just a really nice, it always felt like a nice community. I've never really felt aggressively unsafe at a whole steady show, despite the numbers, <laughs> the gender breakdown. Yeah, that's interesting. Well, that's so sweet of your mom to accompany you that way. No, my mom. I hope my I mom's hope you felt hardcore. that way. My mom's awesome. She's um she bought me my first guitar and she's the reason I play guitar. Oh, wow. That's great. So, were you going to other shows or what was your interaction with is, is that like one of your first concerts or just like No, music was always so important to my family. I'd pretty much been going to like rock shows regularly since I was like Twelve, basically since I they thought I could handle it. I remember seeing Meredith Brooks with my mom and Aerosmith a ton of times. Aerosmith with Kiss. Lots of kind of like that late nineties rock stuff, third eye blind and goo goo dolls and stuff like that. Yeah. But oh yeah. Uh, it was my first club show. Wow, very cool. That is that's a pretty big destination, touring destination, right? That the Southgate House. I feel like Newport is it's not an obvious place, but when you used to see the, you know, the tour schedule, it shows up a lot, right? It definitely used to, the Southgate house is very different now than it was. It used to be in this big old hotel that like Abraham Lincoln had stayed at. I think the guy who invented the Tommy gun might've been born there, but it was a, you know, a multi-room kind of venue. So they had the big ballroom and then they had the bar and then they had like an upstairs, smaller venue. But when you're looking at venues that are that size in the greater Cincinnati area, 
you didn't have a ton of options. Some of them were in like weird kind of vaguely suburb areas like the 20th century theater probably would have been small for them bogarts was a live nation venue albeit a really cool one and not a great area so southgate house really filled in this this gap that a lot of indie bands played i think partially because it was the non-live nation venue in the cincinnati area cincinnati still being very much a secondary market but cincinnati started getting really passed up for live shows for Columbus, Ohio, because Columbus had this really cool like conglomeration of venues that were different sizes. Like they had an outdoor shed, they had a little 300 cap, if that venue called the basement, and then they had an indoor venue, and it was like all part of the Promo West. At least when I was there, like family of venues. So that, but that was like an hour and a half away from me. I couldn't really talk talk my way into going up to Columbus for very many shows especially on school nights, but going to Cincinnati was, you know, not the hardest sell in the world for, for my mother who like gave me Veruca salt records when I was growing up. So you get, you download boys and girls in America and you somewhere around the same time you go to, you go to this show. What's grabbing you about this band? Why are you, why is this one of your deep dive get obsessed? bands when you first heard them what stood out to you ah uh, gosh like a, a lot of stuff really stood out i've always been a big lyrics person so that i think is one of the things that draws a lot of people to the hold steady i've never really given a, a rat's ass about like traditional traditional singing so that wasn't like a barrier for me um and then like pad's guitar stuff was always always very it was so guitar driven and i thought kind of kind of stellar and fun and you could feel the energy but going to that live show was something different i've never seen like audience interaction like that i've also i'd also never been to a show at least not in a long time that was that felt audience driven in that way like people knew what movements craig was going to do before he did them and i think in so i host a podcast called get offset and we interviewed tad and steve last summer when they came to Seattle. And one of the things my co-host said, because the night before I, he, he never really heard of the Hold Steady, never listened to them. I took him to the show because I'm like, well, you have to see the show if we're going to interview them. And he likened it to church in, in a way. Like, oh, everybody is no, just no, seems to know the movement somehow. And that's kind of how it felt, like, like a scene, like a, like a community more so than just a bunch of people who are interested in seeing a show and don't really care about each other particularly. And like a singer or a band that's on the stage, it's interacting with, with the band instead of just like doing their thing and scooting. And like, that's, that's as a musician, that's something that I, I try to do as, as well, just because I, I know how cool it was to see it. And I also want to be cool. <laughs> Don't we all? I do too. I'm with you there. Being cool for sure. So it's a struggle, man. It's hard. Oh, I'm sure for me way more than you, but yeah. <laughs> I gave up on it a long time ago. Otherwise, <laughs> cool was not for me, but. Dude, nothing I've ever done is cool. Fine. <laughs> well, so we're kind of jumping away from the boys and girls in America, but you did, you had Tad and Steve on your show once, and then you had Steve separately. It feels like you've kind of. I, I don't know. Have you guys bonded over the gear or like how do you, it just seems that's pretty cool that you have that. So, and because you talked to Steve, I listened to it 
like literally I listened to it after the fact, but more or less when lockdown was starting to happen this year, like that's a big moment to get a musician's perspective. So, yeah, I mean, well, I just kind of been talking to him about it, uh, texting, but so I met Tad and Steve at the San Francisco shows a couple summers ago. I hadn't seen the whole study in eight years. It really made me sad to think about, but last time I had seen them before the San Francisco shows was Nashville in 2010. And then I lived in Nashville from 2007 to 2015 and they just never came back after 2010 until recently. And they not like they didn't come like nearby. It was a just it wasn't that far to drive to Louisville or Memphis, but I was broke like to get a hotel in my early 20s and make that drive. And my then boyfriend, now husband, like he would have to be at work at like five in the morning. So if we like drove three hours to Memphis on a Tuesday, shows over at midnight. I would have to drive back so that he could get some sleep in the car and then he'd have to be at work at five and then I would have to be at work at eight. Like it it just didn't work and he couldn't really take days off. I mean, I would have taken a day off. So it was kind of a, it just didn't work out. And then they stopped touring. And I think that once we moved to Seattle, we kind of got our careers a little more solidified. And this company I was working with, they always have this big festival called Dobe Fest that same weekend that the whole city was in San Francisco and I chose the whole study over, <laughs> over Dobe, which is like one of the hardest tickets in the industry to get apparently at, at some points. But I also was like, well, let's, let's do the sound check because that sounds cool. I want to really, I haven't seen them in eight years. I want to cram as much in as I can. And it wasn't that much more expensive. And then after we did the pictures and then Tad was kind of hanging out and chatting and he had a, this Gibson electric Spanish style guitar and it had a veritone switch in and I hadn't seen one of those before. And so I just kind of went up to him like, what was that, that extra chicken head switch on, on your guitar? And he's like, it's a veritone. Just come on, I'll show it to you. I'll show it to you. So we were talking about, we just started talking about pedals and stuff. And uh, then Steve came up and we were all talking and I was emailing with, with Tad. And then I ran to Steve in the airport when we were all flying out of San Francisco. And then a few weeks, I guess months later, I made the decision to go to Minneapolis because I had a friend who lived there and I needed to see her and like meet her, meet her new kid. And they were playing Surly Fest and had invited me to the soundtrack that they were doing because he wanted to see this pedal I'd been telling him about. And that just kind of like, ever since then we've, we, we've talked and that was, that was just kind of a really fun a uh, thing that I didn't expect to happen, but you know, sometimes guitar nerds like to talk about guitar shit. Wow, I would have, I would not have noticed the different switch on a guitar. I can promise you that that would have not oh. have been my app, my way in. I don't know if I would have had one. I'm a dork. <laughs> <laughs> People like it when you ask questions about their stuff sometimes because then they are like, "Oh, I'm so proud of this thing that I have," oh, and yeah, then they want to talk about it more usually a good end with people well and i imagine that there's so many more people like us who would come up and say oh that was an awesome show or like it, the lyrics are so much more easy we all speak we all understand the language that's easier to get but like being able to identify something like that and yeah that sort of leads to the gear like what do you think as well first of all how long have you been sort of 
a guitar nerd or how long have you been like into obviously your podcast is a lot about the gear but like how long has that been a focus for you i mean i've been playing guitar since i was eight and kind of in high school like i had some electric guitars i had some effects but so gear kind of does go in and out of favor sometimes you know people in the 80s a bunch of new gear came out sort of in the 2000s people started doing some rack mounted i guess in the 90s people started doing some rack mounted stuff but like that whole thing is it's not always been as i think accessible or prevalent and when i was growing up you never saw women in ads for for gear i remember seeing an ad for marshall amps and it was allison robertson from the donna's and the whole ad was like People always ask me what effects I'm using, but I'm just playing straight through a Marshall with my Les Paul. I'm like, well, maybe that's all I need to do. But then I guess probably in 2016, I started getting more into gear. I had a lot more job security. I was making a little bit better money so I could kind of afford to experiment with things a little bit more. And it really snowballed. If you, I know that this is just a podcast, but you can see what's, what's behind me on the wall. Yeah, just to pay, th- there are a at least four or five guitars hanging over your right shoulder. It looks like another five or six guitars in a rack six down below. Yeah. See, yeah. so yeah, you, you can't see the four in the corner. Oh, that's a, that's a tenor guitar. <laughs> oh, wow. And then oh. what is a Jagstang? Uh, j- jazz master. Jazz master. I have a Coronado two from 67. And I just got that longhorn bass yesterday. It's weird. Dude. It's purple though. That's, Fantastic. I would pretty, love a purple. It looks guitar. intimidating. I don't know if I would pick it up. It looks like it might bite me or something. <laughs> it might. <laughs> <laughs> I make no promises. It has teeth. <laughs> so what do you think of Tad and Steve's setup? Like how would you classify them and their approach to gear? Everyone's approach to gear is a very personal issue. Uh-huh. <laughs> now they have they have really impressive impressive boards. When I was talking to them after the Seattle shows, they they mentioned that previously they'd had other people like build their boards and wire them up for them, but they'd been doing it themselves a lot more. And I feel like they they probably changed them quite a bit. But it's always nice to have a, a steady gig like like they they do with the whole like when you have a steady gig and you're playing with the same band night after night after night, your board probably goes through fewer iterations because you know, these are the songs that we always play and these are the sounds that I always need. And for the more varied you get with a lot of people, like I play with Sunday Crush is the main band I play with. I also pick up a lot of gigs for like Americana style artists. And those are very, very different needs. You have the psychedelic indie dream pop on one on one side. And then you have like the Americana ladies on the other side. And Sunday Crush loves the synth pedals, but uh, the, the Americana artists don't care about them and don't want them. <laughs> and so, so for them, like, I'm, I, I get the feeling that they have like their hold steady boards. But I mean, Steve, when you know live music is a thing, he plays he plays his own stuff a lot. He plays with other people. I know Tad has played with like Courtney Love and other people. So it's just it's really about like finding the gear that's one reliable and two fits your sound probably in that order because the last thing you want is like even if this is a pedal or a guitar sounds perfect for a specific thing if it doesn't work all the time it sucks to have to like fix your board mid set or like why is what's not working in my signal chain because one thing goes awry and everything goes to shit 
because a lot of, I mean, the way to simplify it for people less musically adept like us is that the board is basically a way to extend a guitar has a certain tone and it has a couple switches on or whatever. And the board allows us to extend that. So if I want to get a, a cliche, but like a wah-wah sound or whatever, I need a pedal yeah, a available that sound. I can switch. Yeah. Yeah. So that's the thing, like uh, pedals, like signal chains, that's just like things that are like adding color to, to the sound. And that, it's very commonly like if you listen to almost killed me, you don't hear a ton of effects. You hear drive pedals or some sort of overdrive or distortion. Occasionally you hear something that's a little bit looser, sounds on the verge of fuzz. And of course, reverb, which could be a studio plugin for all I all, all I know. And then like some panning, but you don't hear a lot of weird modulation. You don't hear a lot of an example of chorus would be like the song Purple Rain. You don't hear a lot of like really wet sounds it's a very straightforward rock record which i think is kind of in the style of the time i don't think that having a lot of pedals and building these weird sonic landscapes was super in vogue on vogue like in 2004 i feel like it was a lot more kind of straightforward whereas now you look at steve or tad's boards and like steve has like rotary pedals they have delay pedal like multiple delay pedals, multiple reverb pedals, tremolo pedals, and all these things to add. So like when you look at a painting, sometimes you see like the big globs of of paint and that adds like some visual interest. It's almost like adding texture, more texture to, to a guitar sound because just a guitar played straight into a console, it's not even gonna sound really like a guitar or the way we think of guitars as sounding. You need to have something more interesting happening and for rock music a lot of times that's overdrive it's distortion it's that kind of crunchy sound and then you have the reverb which adds a sense of space to the room like if you're just seeing it live you the sound waves are bouncing off of the walls and then they're hitting you and when you're just playing direct you need other things to make it sound live and there's a lot happening on this record that adds to that live feel, which I think makes it an exciting record as opposed to, you know, just everything deadpan to the middle and acting like they're playing live because you have to compensate for those things. What's an example of something that makes it sound? I agree with you. That's a really interesting insight. But what's an example of of that? Two words, hard panning. Even in instances where you hear, if you, so you'd be remiss to listen, to never listen to Almost Killed Me with headphones. If you've only ever listened to it, like on a stereo where everything gets summed to the middle, it's, it stinks. But if you listen to it with head, it doesn't stink, but it's less exciting. But if you listen to it with headphones, you get a very distinct left and right sound, especially with the guitars. And even for simple things, like for some of the songs you hear, Tad's very clearly playing like the same riff in each ear, but it sounds like he's using different amps and they're hard panned and they're different takes. So there are some differences, but that's like if you stand like center stage during a show, you have one amp on one side of you and one amp on the other. You're not hearing everything like direct to center. Even if you're in the back of the room, a stereo sound is what makes things sound live. And they do that a ton on this record, starting with a positive jam. The guitar 
is it, that when the solo kicks in, yeah, it goes from left to right. And that is something that happens throughout the entire record. Even if it's not like as obvious as that, you can hear a chunk of chunk of chunk on the left and a different chunk of chunk on the right. Like it sounds like he's playing a Vox on one side and a Fender or a Marshall on the other. And it's really, it, it adds a lot of depth to the sound and makes you feel like you're in a room with them. I wanted to pick up on one more thing that you said, which is that that was a very straight ahead sort of approach for Almost Killed Me. And I think listening to interviews from the band and some of the other chronicles of, of their experience, it seems like there was a progression of complexity as you get further into their catalog. I'm thinking there's a, there's a very noticeable wah-wah sound on one of the songs on Separation Sunday. I think it's Hornets, Hornets. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's some filter sings effects going on. a line and then it just goes, goes like wah-wah-wah-wah out into the, out yeah. in there. And Franz Nikolai gets much more involved, I think, on Separation Sunday, and then his role sort of seems to increase over time. Oh, oh, totally. And I think that as the years progress, like other effects became more popular. And I think that as you're in the studio more, you get more confident, like experimenting. You probably get slightly bigger budget. Going into a studio is expensive and it takes a really long time. Like unless you're just tracking a bunch of things live, you have a lot of setup and teardown. You have probably are doing a lot of takes and it's expensive and you don't want to spend more money by having more studio days. So you're probably really keeping it more bare bones. Just we'll experiment next time or maybe we'll do it in post. Like I suspect that the panning, like the hard panning for the souls, I suspect that was done in post just because it feels so manual. And like occasionally, like you hear something that sort of sounds like a filter, like a very slow kind of cock wall kind of going through on some sort of chunk, 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 chunk sounds. And then when you get to killer parties, you hear more delay or something that kind of sounds reversed. I kind of suspect is him just like Pad just playing like a volume pedal and swelling into some notes, but it gives it sort of that reverse or swell or interesting, unique delay kind of feels. But other than that, like all you hear on this record are drive and panning primarily, and then a little bit of tremolo here and there. But I think that's probably like a mix of more confidence in the studio, like doing more effects, more confidence in the studio, a bigger budget for the studio, and also just the changing landscape with guitarists and how they were using effects. Like now it's not uncommon for see someone who plays like one gig a week at church have a pedal board that's like two feet by three feet and has 16 things on it and like $5,000 worth of pedals. Not uncommon at all to see that kind of thing now. And their boards aren't that big, but they're still like, they're still like, I'd say 14 by 24. And you know, that can fit like, I don't know, a dozen pedals on it. Look, I'm looking at my pedal board. How many are on there? I have a volume pedal. I have a drive pedal. Chorus synth delay tremolo and in my amp is on my pedal board so not a lot but you know I, I play mostly with with one band and these are the the things i need for that one band did that answer your question oh, yeah i was just to like cap it off i just remembered that 
hearing the band sort of recount the recording of Almost Killed Me, one of the big adventurous moves they made was to just keep letting Tad solo out into the, the finish of Most People Are DJs, or the solo oh, just yeah. goes on forever and ever. And I think that's awesome. And I think a lot of bands weren't doing it at that time, but maybe that sort of fits in with this idea. Like the big adventurous thing to do was to just like let the guitar be that big of a part of the experience. And then it grew from there. But in the context of 2004, like people weren't doing that at all. So it was probably a big step, even if like from a production or sound perspective, things weren't as adventurous. I think they were taking some some important risks. Yeah, and I think that I, I did listen to the episode about about that song. You talk about the the solo just stopping, and I I suspect it just stops because normally when you hear the fade out, the fade out happens right before the mistake. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, every time I hear that, I'm like, oh, I wonder if he hit a clunker right after that. <laughs> I would love uh -huh. to know. Yeah, I would uh, love to know. The way they describe it sounds like they were just having beers and having beers and just kept yeah. going, which sounds super fun, but. Maybe you'd make a make a mistake at a certain point. <laughs> I love talking. I love had said something about I, I don't remember where it was. It might have been in like a, a soundtrack or something. But that to him, it sounds like Steve, like Steve has like this big melodic approach to solos. He obviously like has a clear destination in mind. And then Tad says, and when I'm solo, I'm just like running headfirst into a wall. And I'm <laughs> like running headfirst into a wall as a guitar solo technique is certainly fun. but like. After he said that, I was like, oh, yeah, that's exactly right. That's exactly what he's doing. I, yeah, I feel like you don't hear him thinking very much in his solo. Not on this record. Not on yeah. this record. And he's pulling, and I always laugh because there are some things that he very clearly pulls from, like, old Prince songs. Like, there are a couple, like, every once in a while I'll hear a riff. I think that even, like, in later records, I think in, like, on Boys and Girls in America, there's, like, one point where I'm like, oh, that sounds like, that sounds like a Prince riff. And I think that it was the big solo and Sweet Pain. There's just one little riff in there that I'm pretty sure he pulled from Why You Want to Treat Me So Bad by Prince. It's like the da 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 like sometimes the solos or the riffs feel more like calisthenics and that's like um that's also very prince-esque because sometimes prince was solo and he didn't he didn't really know where he was going he just like again was like running headfirst into a wall and like the, the why you want to treat me so bad solo is a great example of that there's that big fast run like and that is technical technically correct that is how you would say that to other guitarists. But I, I feel that way. And Wendy Melvoin said this about Prince once, I think mostly for the song Computer Blue, but like, like you're playing so fast, you don't even know what you're doing. <laughs> You'd have to go back and listen to it. And I, I get that vibe and it's a very Minnesota and I really appreciate it. Well, it's funny because everybody, you know, obviously Minneapolis and we, everybody thinks about Minneapolis and Minnesota and how important that is. But it's the replacement. It's Husker Du. It's Soul Asylum, and Prince is sort of there as like this deity-like figure in the background who's just like hovering over Minnesota. But you don't think of how great a guitarist he was and how 
it's not we think of Craig Finn dropping lyrics that recall other songs or other artists. You think about it a little bit with Tad and with the guitars, but yeah, that's really. I hadn't got to that level. We paint again. We've princes come up in our conversations, but we haven't found specific connections like that. So that's really exciting. Like I haven't known where to fit Prince in with the hold studies mythology or musical influences. And so that's a really cool catch. And if you have more of that, I'm definitely <laughs> interested in hearing about it. Those were the two things I definitely heard. And just like the, the kind of the similar approach, because like Prince, like, again, like told Tad saying running head first into a wall. Sometimes that's what Prince did too. Sometimes he really took his time and was very melodic with it. But like his most famous solos, like the, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, While My Guitar Gently Weeps, I don't think he knew what he was going to play before he played it. I think he just felt it out and was like, this feels right. And was kind of thinking with his fingers a little bit more than his brain at, at points, which is, you know, awesome. I mean, it's a great solo. It's like, it doesn't matter why you did it the way you did it. I think it says more that you didn't have to think about it. You still came up with something that awesome, but just really thinking in riffs was cool. And a lot of the, the, the riffs, like the riffy guitar stuff, it's a little like, I don't want to say asymmetrical because that's not right, but it's just the way it repeats kind of takes it a little bit off of center each time. And it just sounds like it would be very hard. Like you would really have to focus to hit those riffs. And, it's, and it really is, is very computer blue to me when, when that solo, when that solo and that song kicks in. So th- those, those are the real ones. And Prince used a ton of effects a lot, but mostly boss effects, which is pretty cool because boss for those un- uninitiated in the guitar world boss is one of the oldest most consistent guitar pedal manufacturers their pedals are tanks they're also widely considered entry-level guitar pedals they're not boutique they're mass-produced but nobody really poo-poos them because they're such great effects generally speaking and you can always say they were good enough for prince i didn't know prince was a was a boss boss player those are yeah. my only two pedals I ever bought were both Boss. I bought a Boss Chorus and a Boss Overdrive, I think. Which Boss Chorus? It was light blue. <laughs> I don't know. Had two, two dials on it. One for, I don't even remember what they were. One for raid and one for depth. Typically. Yeah, that's a depth I wanted to say. I thought it was very cool. I forget what I was trying to go for. It was like a very, made everything sounds sweeter, I guess. Yes. I would- I think that there, I think there's some chorus on one of these songs. I just can't, I think Sweet Pain has something else on there that's sweetening it. It might be a chorus. It might be a phase. Yeah. But I think I was trying to sound like there was some Smashing Pumpkins like that. I, it was funny, like three seconds of a song and I'm, I'm spending like $60 on this pedal. So I guess it just can, I don't know. I'm glad I got a grip because I think it could have spiraled out of control for me. Yeah, you didn't talk about, I don't, actually, you can't see the uh, guitar pedals that are also on my wall. Uh, oh, my yeah, God. They are, they are, yeah. <laughs> she tilts her camera up slightly. There's like 10, <laughs> 10 of the hex pedals up there. Those are shelves that are like the Ikea picture frame shelves. And I have six, seven, I have 10 of them in this room. And they're filled with pedals. Wow. People just keep sending me stuff, guys. that's good yeah keep doing it people i think it's interesting to think of tad as i want i wanted to ask you a question about sort of precision 
you mentioned things like getting a little off center when they're repeated. And I think of him as being a kind of more of an intuitive player. He talked about growing up. He was in a lot of just like metal cover bands or just like was playing metal, has all the metal songs memorized by heart Mm -hmm. and learned them all by ear, which means that a lot of those chunky riffs and, and licks and solos are things that you get the sense they're just kind of like flowing through him. Like he's fluent in a language or something like that. Muscle memory a little bit. Yeah. He also, in one of the early interviews, he says that Jimmy Page, he doesn't think Jimmy Page was a very polished guitar player. And he's right. And okay. So I, when I saw that, I was was like, this guy, it's 2004. You've come out with one album and you're taking a shot at Jimmy Page. I thought that was pretty ballsy, but yeah. What do you think? (laughs) I think he's right. I don't, I think a lot of the, the, when you look at some of the most famous guitarists from classic rock, they weren't the most polished and they were messy. Like Jimi Hendrix, as famous as he was, he was not like the smoothest player on stage. Like he, he made mistakes, but just like he rolled with them really well from the who, like, God, just like literally any of those bands, like they, in, in that era, of like the late 60s, early 70s, if you want to look at the more like technical guitarists, like they were in country music or they were Santana. And I think that uh, in general, rock guitarists, <laughs> as a rock guitarist, we're not the best guitarists. We, some, like a lot of them are fast and whatever, but yeah, I don't, I don't have a lot of great things to say about Jimmy Page, personally. Okay, I think that they, fair enough. I think, I think that they stole Stairway to Heaven. And I also think that he uh, is a pedophile. Whoa. Okay. I don't know oh, anything he's, about he's that. He slept with 13 year old wow. girls. Right. Okay. Right. Okay. Right. I don't. And he molested one with a fish. Ooh, allegedly. Okay. I have nothing to say about that. <laughs> but, but back to Tad, like, where would you place him in terms of, not in terms of, of deviance, but in terms of his playing? Like, do you think that he's. Because I, I get the feeling that, that it's very intuitive, it's not very thinking, but would you call him a precise player or do you think he falls more into that 60s and 70s thing? Or is he like just recalling that type of approach to playing? I think Tad has grown immeasurably as a guitarist over the years, as I think that you would expect somebody to grow as a guitarist over the course of like, what, 15, 16 years? I got to reiterate, I don't think there's anything wrong with not being like a player who's thinking like, and if I just flat the seventh and sharp the eighth, and then I can use this mode to that. Like, I don't think, I don't think that you need to do that to create emotional music that resonates with people. And I don't think that you should necessarily strive to do that if that's not what you want to do. I think that Tad very much has his guitar influences and he's made it into something that's very much his. And plays guitar in ways that suit the songs so well and are fun and catchy. And I think that's what makes somebody a very good guitarist, more so than like technical prowess or anything like that. It's just, can you, can you get an emotion out of the crowd? Because if you can't do that, then who the fuck cares? Honestly. So, I mean, I like Tad as a guitarist. I like, a, I like Jimi Hendrix as a guitarist. I like a lot of people who I say are not like, who I would say aren't the most technical guitarist as guitarists because they they get something out of me. 
I wanted to step back to the whole study in general. Like, what's your favorite at this point? What's your favorite either album or era of the Hold Steady? I'm really, I really like the the current era. Honestly, I I think that they keep growing in very positive ways, and I love all of the the singles that they've released over the past several years, and putting those together into a record. I think was was a great idea. I just, you know, I think it's great. I think it's, I really dig it. I think that everything seems to be coming together uh, without ego that I can, I can't hear ego anywhere majorly in there. I think that they've just gotten better and better at working together. I think Mike and I are both partly just because that's what you first hear. And a lot of times you love what you first hear. I think we're more biased to the early stuff. What I think is interesting is your, what you're, making as a point here is that you would assume that musicians get better over time. And it's not like there's a certain physical element to it, but it's not like sports where you only have a certain peak of your physical abilities. But I think it's not uncommon for people to like the early stuff for a band a lot. And I just think there's something when you're talking about how they grow with the studio, you think a lot of the famous acoustic artists who then cross over and play Electric. Dylan is the most obvious at the I time. I say Bob Dylan. <laughs> yeah, he's the most obvious. Iron and Wine at the time. I remember it was sort of a big deal that they were going from his super hushed, folky stuff to more of an ornate production. I like the ornate stuff more in that case. Bonnie Vare. Bonnie Vare is a great, another great example. And it's interesting with the whole city. You describe Almost Kill Me as this barely bare bones. And it's the incarnation of the band where Franz is only guesting on a couple songs. I don't know if Craig is playing any guitar on the record, but it's really just the core four piece at the time. And now they're now they're back as the Voltron of two guitarists and a keyboardist. I don't know. It just it's interesting how that parallels with them growing as musicians. And yet, for whatever reason, we like the older stuff. So I don't know. Well, I, I don't. When I look at my favorite performers and artists in the world, they all have one thing in common, and it's that no two records really sound the same because uh, they just progressively grow. And then, then you have something for whatever you're in the mood for. And it's so cool and it's great. And to be able to look back on those things, because I think that whatever record you came in on, it's probably always going to be like a special place in your heart. Like, I don't know how often I'm going to get the same emotional response I get from any other song versus the stuff on boys and girls in America, just because that, that was such like a part of my, my youth and my childhood. I mean, I started listening to them when I was 17 and that's really formative. And that's the stuff you get stuck in your head a lot more. And so like, it makes sense that like the older stuff would hold a special place in your heart. But for me, I don't want to just like, I'll listen to the same thing. Like you said, like like I said earlier, a hundred times, like it's cool. I'm for it. But at the same time, I want to see growth with the the performers and the artists that I invest my time and energy and money into, especially as I get older and have less of that time. I, I, I just, I want to grow with the bands too. And that's, that's something that I've really appreciated about the Hold Steady is that I've been able to grow with them as they grow and as they release stuff. And I don't, I don't think that there's a ton of bands that really do that anymore i feel like there are a lot of bands that they try for a while and they have their success and then they split off into different things and then there are bands that just will do the same thing forever like 
I don't want this to be a dig on Dr. Dog. I love Dr. Dog, but I don't feel that kind of growth with them. And it, when with a band, when you feel like you've heard one record, you've heard a lot of their records. It's not, it's just not as exciting. I'll still happily go to a Dr. Dog show and pay money to see them live, but I'm not really, I'm not really buying their records because I just, ah, I don't, I don't know if that matters as much right now for me. Yeah, that's really a, a good framework to think about following a band over time. I used to think about, I think a friend of mine in college said this and it stuck with me, the idea of there's like a, a certain amount of leash you give a band. And so if you love a band, you love everything they do, even if it's not great. But, you know, like you said, it's evolving or it's different or it's something interesting. But then some bands, they release a stinker and you're like, OK, I'll give them another band or another album to see if I like it. And then you kind of if they're not evolving or if it's repeating or they go in a weird direction, you just kind of give up and you might still have that soft feeling for them. Yeah, that's fair. What who are the other you mentioned? What are some other artists just to, for listeners to place your constellation of stars? Who else is out there? <laughs> well, I mean, it's I, I really love Prince. Um, I'm a big Elvis Costello fan as well. I really love Kathleen Edwards. She just released a new record. It's phenomenal. Yeah, those are those are just a couple of them that I've been listening to a lot right now. I've been listening to Soccer Mommy a lot and Julian Baker, Phoebe Bridgers, Lucy Dacus, basically Boy Genius <laughs> together and separately. I like the Breeders a lot. Yeah, it goes in a lot of it. It can go in a lot of directions. A lot of uh, old older country music as well, and some modern country music. Some of it's pretty good. Give us some names for both older and modern country. Well, I think you gotta listen to Buck Owens if you're gonna listen to older country music. And if you like guitar, man, there's some great guitar on those old songs. I think you gotta listen to Loretta. You gotta listen to Dolly. What? Gosh, just. I love Willie's Roadhouse on a Sirius XM. I could just listen to that for for hours. And then for modern stuff like Casey Musgraves, Margot Price. I love Marin Morris. Mostly mostly the women. The women are the women are doing really good in country music right now. And also Jason Isbell, of course. Yeah, I, I'm Margot Price, I got I saw reviews of her latest album, and so I've been listening to that and really enjoy it. And my my wife heard it and she's like, that's weird for you to listen to. I was like, I'm into, I'm not, not opposed to it. I feel like my country interest sort of shot back to like Hank Williams. And I got into probably through Dylan and the basement tapes. I got into all the AO, AO Smith folk recordings, like the big, there's the, that three or six album collection or whatever. And so I've got sort of the roots of country, but uh, yeah. That's important. The roots of country music. I mean, it's like the roots of American music in a lot of ways. Yeah. 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 I mean, it all, that's what's funny is all of this comes from pretty much the same two or three different sort of roots and then they just spread out in different flavors. Yeah. I mean, R&B has more in common with like country music because like people like James Brown, like the radio station they got growing up was a country music station. So that that plays into it a lot more than we than we imagine it does. Like I think that R and B has more in common with country music than, than traditional blues. It's hmm. an interesting. Yeah, I would have to like restudy and rewire my brain to think about the connections <laughs> and how they overlap. But yeah, for sure. 
prediction time. The whole study is going to release, hypothetically, the whole study <laughs> is going to release a country music album. Oh my God. I thought that Craig already did that. What do you think your rating one to 10 would be on that? How, how involved is Steve? They got to use, they can't bring anyone, they can't bring the Dixie Chicks in, but they can use any of the existing members. I think Steve would take it in a good place. I think also I have to imagine that Craig has a good understanding of country music because lyrically, like a lot of those old country records had great storytelling. So I have to imagine yeah. he has at least an appreciation for it and listen to some of his solo stuff. I I feel I think it'd be a good. I think it'd be a I think it'd be an interesting record. Yeah. I as I was asking, I sort of was like, I would be optimistic. Yeah. yeah. And let's uh, call it an Americana record. I think that'd be more apt. It could get on the right Spotify channels or whatever. They need yeah. to get a steel, a steel guitar player. Yeah, I, I feel like they could take a. I also was looking through some of my most recent and like blues. I could see them doing a blues album too. I don't know. That's just they have maybe that's shows a little bit the kind of where they fit in the American music tradition a little bit that they seem like they could they absorb and could branch into some different genres. Craig knows tragedy too, so I feel like that would be good for the country music country side music, of things. Man. You could be sad. Great, great sad songs. Great music to cry to, you know, intentionally. I don't know how many, I don't know how many people will cry when they listen to the whole steady songs. I do a little bit, but I cry a lot. When he says he was getting with her hood rat, her little hood rat friend, yeah. I've I was <laughs> I was a little hungover. I was taking a shower and I listened to music while I shower and that played and I like was like, oh no. Oh, man, I don't know, it just crew. moved me. Like, yeah. yeah, it knocked me off my feet. Yeah. Yeah. So a lot of uh, emotional have, moment. A lot of manipulative musical stuff going going on. I, I don't think people who aren't in music theory, and I'm not as in music theory, but I was in a band with a guy who like major like has a master's in music theory and he, and he was talking about something that's like oh yeah that progression right there is just manipulative to make you cry i'm like what <laughs> oh <laughs> like yeah specifically about about that no just like that he, he picked out oh. something he's like oh yeah that chord progression in general is will give you goosebumps and will probably elicit an emotional response and it's not that it's bad it's just like it's predictable <laughs> like katie perry uses those probably now an like entitlement she, she, crew though on the uh i never got to say goodbye to you that that kind of hits me every time i listen to it i'm like fuck yeah <laughs> daniel doesn't cry <laughs> it's something i'm working on it's something i <laughs> well cry, cry, trying to cry on zoloft is like trying to sneeze and you can't so that's that's some that's that's where i am sometimes <laughs> yeah this has been I don't, is there anything, I, I don't really have any, I mean, there's so much like music stuff that I could go to, but I don't want to, is there anything else that you feel and that about the whole steady you feel that people should know about or should be thinking about or just anything else you want to talk about? I just think that, I think that we love, we all love this band and thanks for, thanks for having me on to talk nerdy stuff with, uh, with y'all. Tell our listening audience where they can find you, what other projects you're doing, that kind of thing. My band Sunday Crush has a record coming out and you can pre-order it at donutsounds.com or sundaycrush.com. And it's Sunday like the ice cream treat. And 
uh, I have a podcast and gear demo channel called Get Offset. And we mostly talk about guitar stuff and music industry stuff and musical stuff with kind of the goal of offsetting the status quo of gear culture. But let's, but, but Get Offset is truly just a reference to a Prince song at its heart because there was that Prince song, Get Off. I wanted to spell it with two <laughs> T's, but that was not approved. Not approved. <laughs> I, th- I thought it was just the, uh, I didn't, I, this is my naivete. I didn't know what a offset guitar was. And so I thought that was the, but you're saying it's a pun as well. It's a, it's a pun. Yes. It's a pun. Get offset An offset for those listening at home. It's like a, it's a, so if you look at a normal acoustic guitar, for example, the, the waist of it, it's a, a mirror image basically it's what's the word parallel that's symmetrical it's symmetrical uh, symmetrical an offset guitar has an asymmetrical waist that's offset by at least 10 degrees that is the technical definition of an offset guitar so like a jazz master a jaguar a mustang look at whatever guitars liz fair plays those are usually offsets if you are confused the whole state don't play offsets i was supposed to see liz fair play with alanis morissette this fall we had bought tickets in advance and Duh. they push it back Oof, to 2021. So well, that's still optimistic to be honest. <laughs> I'm afraid it is, but yeah, it's still optimistic. I saw Alanis once for like the acoustic jagged little pill tour. Did not love it. No. Oh no. It's it was fine. It was just I like electric guitars, I guess. Nothing wrong with that. <laughs> yeah. We bought we bought the tickets. My wife wanted to see Alanis, and I was more excited about Liz. I'm, I'm generally more excited about Liz Fair. I love Alanis Morissette. That um that was one of my first records that I really liked was uh, Jagged Little Pill. But as I got older and I listened to Liz Fair, I'm like, oh my god, this is me. <laughs> <laughs> I know this. That would be a good one to do, Jagged Little Pill. Oh, yeah. That was so big. It was so, so big. many people's lives changed people's lives, I think. That record went diamond. Yeah, no, it was huge. But Exile and Guyville is also like uh... relatively unimportant. <laughs> wow. <Whoa. laughs> just kidding. I'm just kidding. I, I will punch you through just... the screen. <laughs> no, no, no. If you want to get punched in the mouth? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, no. I shouldn't threaten. I shouldn't threaten violence. <laughs> no, that's I, I exile and guy. It's, it's okay. a pretty yeah. It's just uh, also an album that has a lot to talk about. Just I mean, a lot of songs tracks. on that record. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> a lot of guitar stuff to talk about too. Like, how does it sound to play a duo sonic through a crate amplifier? Weird. The answer is weird. <laughs> All right. Well. I'm going to just sort of put a bookmark to that. Maybe we can, if we get to that album and you're, you're interested, we'll make sure to reach out for that. But I'll take detailed notes. All right. <laughs> All right. Well, Emily, thank you so much. This has been a lot of fun. And thanks for uh, having me. Absolutely. And keep up the great work. I've, I've been enjoying your podcast. And I confess I haven't checked out Sunday Crush yet, but it's going to be the first thing I yep. listen to. <laughs> That's all right. Reorder it. That's. We ordered at the donut shop. Donut sounds. Is that right? Donut sounds. Donut sounds. Yeah. Yeah. Donut sounds. D O N U T. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of a positive jam. 
Don't forget to check out the Get Offset podcast and Sunday Crush, whose record is on sale at Donut Sounds. Again, this is it for season one, but be in touch with us on Twitter at, at Daniel Shortman, at Shortman Studios, or at M. Brooks Taylor, or email us at mail at shortmanstudios.com. We may pop up with a few mini episodes before season two starts, but in any case, you'll be hearing from us soon. Thank you for all your support on this first season and stay positive. <laughs>